three, a little late. Call to order the today, May 11th, and, fi uh, and final for this run, uh, Finance Committee meeting. Uh, do we have any public comments? Anybody on Zoom? Our record is intact since I've been on and since 2013. We've never had a public comment, which says something. I'm not sure why. <laughs> you have something, Mr. Helen? Nope. Don't you have slides? I do. So, yeah, I just want to get through, you know, all the here, the departments, um, and then the item number four on the agenda. Oops, sorry, Chris. Um, your record's broken. Somebody raised their hand for public comment, George. Oh, I think well, maybe you incited. Can you? Uh, Her name's Jessica. Jessica. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, Jessica Guerra, 12 Eagle Drive. I really just wanted to break your record. <laughs> um, I do have one question, though, um, and I, I don't know if it's just redundant or what, but I still haven't wrapped my mind around with the proposed budgets that come through and like there's a statement of department request versus town administrator recommends the department request that i see doesn't match up with what is the ask of the department so from an educational perspective i'm just asking where does that number come from if not from the actual department's request if you could clarify that would be wonderful mr helm through chairman so jessica i think if i if i have your question correct you're looking at the larger budget book or what's on the screen right so i can't actually see what's on the screen oh, okay. but, so um, I, I understand the department request so um, when it gets to this point in the process, the department request is essentially the same as the town administrator request. And why do we do that? Because we put out the department request model at the joint budget subcommittee meetings in early March every year. And ultimately, um, you know, it's one of those situations where, um, you know, we could load up. I mean, the departments will ask for you know millions of dollars more than anything we could possibly afford. The Joint Budget Subcommittee meetings and group was created specifically to look at what the department requests were. And those folks are appointed from the school committee to council, town council and the finance committee. And so we go through that usually every early March. Um, and they look at the department requests. So I think I sent you an email before with the uh, proposed budget that had a, I think, $6 million deficit in March, and that's really where the department requests are. Uh, by the time it gets to this process, to be honest, it's just so much extra work. Um, when you get to the budget book, um, this is essentially what we do to kind of streamline the process a little in terms of the town administrator budget. I hope that clarifies the question. So essentially what it sounds like is it's almost like a non-column. It's almost like a non-column. It's going to be what the town administrator's recommendation is regardless of Correct. what the original request was. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yep. Thank you. Yep. 
Anything else? And thank you. I'll send you a black in the mail. <laughs> Gift card. All Just your verbal that. recognition. That's all it takes. Thanks. <laughs> okay, first, um, police pop. Department 210. Could you just give us a quick overview of what's happening? Absolutely. <sighs> T.J. Lynch, Police Chief, uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the Finance Committee. So I, I know you've read my budget narrative, um, and basically the only difference between you know collective bargaining increases and inflation-related things, you will see uh, on our expense side, we had some increases. There were some, you know, basically historic items that we normally would get through capital, through the capital town's capital budget plan um, that a number of people, including this committee, as well as the uh, subcommittee of the council, had inquired about why they were in the capital budget if they were regular operating expenses. And they wanted those a, a number of those items moved into our expense account. So that, that's where a majority of the increase with the tasers, the uh, body armor, um, and the uh, information technology program were all included in the expenses. Uh, the other increase to the budget would be the four additional police officers. Um, we're trying to increase our patrol operations division from 30 to 34 uh, patrol officers. And why are we requesting it? If you, if you over the last five years, if you read the budget narrative that I've submitted, I've basically requested the same thing. I've, I've highlighted three different phenomenon that we that have occurred. One is the increase in service demand that we basically uh, faced and continue to face each and every year. It just keeps going up. Number two, um, you know, we just to be one, we just haven't been properly staffed for the last two decades. You know, in fiscal year in 2000, the department was budgeted for 54 police officers. We never got to 54. We only got to 50 due to, you know, the, knowing that budget constraints were coming. But we only got to 54 in fiscal year 22. So it took 22 years to basically get the department to where the town agreed it should be and would have a, a sworn officer complement of 54 officers 22 years later. Um, and I don't think anybody here would disagree with me that, you know, we're, we're not dealing with less call for service volume, less traffic, less population today than we were in the year 2000. Um, so we simply can't, with the numbers that we have, we cannot provide our patrol operations division with a two over the minimum schedule. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, Let me go back. It, it, the comparable, we also did a comparable community study, you know, of nine total communities between 30 and 36,000, and the average is 58.8. That's the average that a community of our size, you know, would, would basically have, um, which would allow them to basically do a schedule that would provide what we need. Um, for instance, <coughs> town of Norwood, 10 square miles, 28,000 people, 62 police officers. All right. And the reason for that is nothing other than they're, they're looking to do a schedule that allows for you know two offices over the minimum. So I just want to explain a little bit. Son here, Jim. Yes. What's the minimum? I'm going to explain that right now. 
Okay. So right now, the operations division of the police department, there are three different divisions. Specialized services, which is detectives and the community service officers that serve as SROs at the schools. And then you have the administration division, which handles everything from scheduling, finances. That's made up of you know two offices, a lieutenant and a patrol officer, and two civilian employees. The rest of the department, seven supervisors, sergeants, and 30 patrol officers, I'm going to concentrate on the patrol officers, all work in the patrol operations division. They work on a four-on-four-off -four schedule. Again, there's 30 total patrol officers. They're divided into two groups, 15 in group A, 15 in group B, and they're spread across five shifts to maintain the minimum staffing. So this is our current schedule with 30 offices. The red line is basically the minimum. What is the minimum? The minimum is the actual threshold or the floor that we have to maintain the number of offices to be able to respond to call for service volume and to make sure that they're safe when they're out there working. You can't go below the floor. Okay, so whenever you end up going below the floor, you have to hire for overtime to make sure that you go back up to the minimum. If you can see here, out of 19 out of 24 hours, we only schedule one officer over the minimum. These spikes are because of our four-on-four-off, 10-hour shift, along with those schedules, where we have overlaps where you will have a couple of hours where there's officers that are ending their shift and other officers are coming in. So we've hired 30 officers in the last six and a half years. Starting in July, I started in July of 2016, we've hired 30. So there is never a time where we're actually at full staff. We have been at full staff for a total of four weeks on two two-week different occasions in the last six and a half years. All the other times we are down bodies, and that's either because of turnover or injuries, lengthy illnesses, whatever. So when you only have one scheduled over the minimum, and then you have a thing such as a four to two officer who, A, could be out because they're injured, or B, which happened some, uh, recently, two young officers in their late 20s, early 30s, walk into the, my office and say, Chief, we're leaving our careers in law enforcement and we are going to the private sector. We're taking jobs in the private sector. So they give me two weeks notice. Even if I have a qualified transfer in mind that's already told me they want to come to work for us, it's gonna take three months before that officer is able to go through their pre-employment screenings, background check, medical, psychological, et cetera, come on the department and then do their field training before they actually now go into that vacant four to two or whatever shift it was that that person left. If I hire somebody to put them in the academy, it's a solid year that that four to two shift will remain open. We have not had the luxury to send anybody in the academy because we just can't, fiscally or morale-wise, just can't do it. So when you have that four to two now open, that six hour block right there, for that three months that they're gone, four months, whatever, it's now at the minimum. Which means now whenever, whenever the other offices that are on that schedule use their benefited time off, their vacation time, their holidays, their personal days, they get sick. And they call in, next slide. Now we're below the minimum, we have to hire. And this can be compounded by just having a number of people out at the same time, which on several occasions we would down four or five officers with them not in the schedule, and now we are down and we have to hire regularly. The department has basically met its capacity. Oh, all right, so if we add, 
adding four additional officers. Four to two with six. This is what we're going to do with the four additional officers. We get them. We're going to add two officers to the four to two shift and two to six to four. Basically, one shift each on both squads, A and B. Excellent. Now we're, we will be two over the minimum for 20 hours out of 24. That's seven days a week. That's every day. Every day. Next. Again, you have an open shift because somebody leaves, somebody's injured, somebody's ill, somebody takes a day off. Again, same thing, four to two. We're still one over the minimum. We now need at least three people to be out before we end up in an overtime situation. Next. And again, if, we, if you had two people out, basically you're still at the minimum and you're not in the overtime. And this is what it looks like at the comparison of 34 officers and 34. There's the minimums. And the blue would represent with 34 and the red with 30. You kind of get the, the picture with the visuals. Okay. So why? The department right now has basically met its voluntary, basically the overtime that we offer, we're at voluntary capacity, meaning that we're offering more overtime than what officers are willing to take. Because what happens when we go below the minimum and we have to hire somebody to work? If we know about it in advance, we put it out to bid, which means the officers can bid it through our police officer scheduling system. If, we, if somebody calls in ill eight hours before their shift, or no one takes a bid that has been out there, then we actually put it out through a paging system saying, hey, we have this shift, and if you want to volunteer for it, bid it. If nobody volunteers for it, they get ordered. No choice. They don't have a choice. We're a paramilitary organization. We are not a restaurant where you can close down a section of it because we don't have enough waiters or waitresses, et cetera. They basically get ordered to work. They either have to come in early and then work their 10, or they have to stay late and work after they've done their 10-hour shift because we don't order people when they're not scheduled to work that day, meaning ordering people to come in. You've got the 30 officers that are eligible to, that are in the patrol division. You add the 10 other patrol officers that work in specialized services. You have 40 eligible officers that could potentially get ordered. In fiscal 21, we ordered 1,114 hours, or an average of 28 hours a year and since the shifts are anywhere because of the overlaps, only four, five, or six hours, they're getting ordered five to six times per year. In fiscal year 22, it was 1,560 hours, or almost a week. 40 hours of work, again, seven to 10 shifts per year because they're only getting ordered four, five, or six hours. Fiscal 23 to date, 1,480 hours. Our biggest, one of the biggest issues we have when it comes to the ordering and so forth or with people taking time off is at the end of the fiscal year. You cannot carry time over from year to year. You have to use it. So they have to use it by June 30th. A lot of people do hold on to their time in case something comes up. And so they end up using a lot of it during the last two months. So we're going to probably exceed that 1,560 hours. It's just, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, we just don't, you know, if we do not end up doing something about this, it's just going to—it's going to continue to cause a problem, and it's going to cause a problem with morale when you start to continue to order people. Um, Twenty years ago, and I've been with the Franklin Police Department for over 27 years, a patrol officer would get ordered a four to eight-hour shift once every few years, because one of the phenomenons that we're dealing with is not only do we just don't have enough staff, we cannot field a schedule that provides for two over the minimum. 
it's also that there's a cultural change in the newest generation of police officers coming onto the force. They're just not interested in the premium pay that people get for overtime. They're just not interested. They either they don't need the money or they, or they want to spend time at home. I still haven't been able to fully get the full like why, but I'm telling you right now, they're just not interested in doing it. I'm not saying that's the reason that the two young officers decided to leave. It could be. I had exit interviews with both of them. They said they would never go to another police department, but they just weren't interested in, in continuing to do the work. Some of it to do with the ordering and all that, but they also can't work from home. And I don't know when the law enforcement profession will ever be able to work from home. Um, it's just not going to happen. So it, you know, basically this is what it is. And if we don't do something about it, I'm afraid that we may end up starting to experience turnover because people are looking to go to departments that actually do feel departments with the proper staff necessary that they don't have to have as much overtime and that they won't end up having to order people to work as often. Make one quick comment on that. Um, we don't know why. I think there's a lot of changing reasons. And obviously law enforcement has been shifting. Um, I just want to articulate one quick story I heard from one officer which uh, really hit home. You know, she basically said, look, you know, when you're raising a family and you're raising kids and you get ordered in for a four-hour shift, let's say even at an overtime rate of 80 or $85, you tally that up over four hours, it's about 320 bucks, right? You know, give or take 350 bucks. After taxes, et cetera, to get a sitter, it's not worth it. You, you don't really come in and do that shift and really make any money after taxes, after you get child support, or you get a babysitter for your, for your family on a Saturday. It's just not, it, it, quite frankly, I agree with them. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound very appetizing to take a lot of shifts when you're really only going to end up pocketing 100 bucks maybe or 120 bucks for that, for that day. You've essentially given up your entire weekend for that. You know, and so I think I think TJ already mentioned, the chief already mentioned a whole a few other things. Um, I think all of you on the committee and everybody watching from home, um, I think we all are overextended. I think we all want more personal time. And I think I give a lot of credit to a lot of younger officers. They're saying we're getting into this field, we love what we do. But I think what we're hearing is we're just trying to draw some new lines in the sand from the generations that worked a lot of overtime, right? The time and a half was, was there, what it was the money, whatever the reasons are, we're seeing that shift. And so when TJ talks about the morale, this was one of the biggest issues you know, we heard of during collective bargaining, and I know for a fact we're gonna to continue to hear from it. While we can't cite the officers that left, that was a unilateral reason, pay, for example, and compensation and other issues is obviously one of the big ones. And to raise a family in a field like this is very, very challenging. Additionally, you know when you come to the Franklin Department, you're giving up your 4th of July. Every officer to do the 4th of July festival, that is an ordered thing for every single police officer. So in New England, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody, that's, your, <laughs> that's the prime week or two of the year. School's out, everyone goes away, Kate, whatever you mean, Kate, doesn't matter where you go but every single officer has to be in Franklin for the 4th of July festival. You, you get hired, you know that, but I think those additional elements continue to just kinda you know, chip away at a little bit of the morale, and so investing in this 
system, at least now, um, is huge. And for the entire community to understand, and I know, George, you bring it up every year as a cited example in the fire, fire department, et cetera, um, you, know, um, you know, in terms of shifting the pieces here, um, we, we have to recognize the gentleman next to me, um, we just literally cannot suck any more blood out of a rock. He even told me after the four by four, there's nothing more I can do. Uh, there's no more rabbits in a hat. I have no more magic wands. And yet still, <laughs> a year or two later, with SRO agreements and Tri-County and other things, we, he still then pulled another rabbit out of the hat. Um, there's just no more magic tricks. Um, at the end of the day, the community, with the call volume that's here, um, we just saw some new numbers from the MEC the other day. Uh, and I know the fire chief is going to speak to this too. Um, the calls for service are just are just record breaking every year, and I, I don't foresee, and I think the chief will speak to this too. We don't see any situation in which fire or police is going to have a downgrade in, in, in calls anytime soon. And you know, at some point, if you're in my seat, you know you can't keep working with these folks, and then say we just can't keep doing nothing. You just have to some point do something and in the fire chief's case um, and in the police chief's case they're finding other ways to obviously ambulance receipts you know are up and so that justifies some additional paramedics in this case reducing the forced overtime you know will hopefully in FY25 and beyond still save money in the overtime budget so it's not like just a big investment with no additional savings I think I put that in the slides and in the narrative um, but from a morale perspective, uh, and TJ can speak to this as well, you know, five, six, seven years ago when we offered a test, you'd get 200, 250 people applying for to be a police officer. Today we're getting 40. And we don't really have a lot of extra room here um, to, um, the bench is obviously less than it's ever been for dynamics that are probably far from out of our control. Um, and so at some point the town, and this is the, in my opinion, obviously the right year, which is why We've added in the officers. Um, you know, this, we just have to make this investment as a community. So I hope, you know, I just want to say those oh, things really quickly. I, I mean, the, the thing <laughs> is, is I just wanted to say that Sorry. this isn't just about ordering. It's not just about overtime. Um, it's talking about fielding a schedule that's appropriate for a number of different things. And these are some of the things like the add-ons that would also do, you know, it's gonna bring us in line with the standards, you know, that currently are used in law enforcement of two or more over the necessary minimum. You know, again, it realizes the cultural change, you know, about overtime. Um, maybe they're right, who knows? Yeah. I didn't like working 72 hours a, uh, a week for like seven years, but I put my wife to grad school, got the house on Shady Lane that I bought and so forth. Maybe they don't want to go, I don't know, I didn't have, my parents didn't give me their inheritance in, in, you know, while they were alive. Um, I, I don't know where they get the money from, but God love them. Uh, it's going to account for current and anticipated increases in the call for service volume that we, you know, we kept talking about it. Uh, the safety of the officers would be enhanced with more officers assigned on the shifts. It's going to allow for increased traffic enforcement. As I showed you, when we're at the minimum, there's no directed patrols to put out to go to the plethora of requests that we receive to actually do traffic enforcement. It's one thing to put the radar board out that says your speed is this. It's another thing to have an officer there that's pulling, your role, pulling you over. Okay? And the only way that we gain, it's voluntary compliance. We will never be able to pull everybody over that speeds or violates the traffic laws, it's voluntary compliance. They see the blue lights, maybe they're like, yeah, I don't wanna be the next one they pull over. Um, we wanna be out there, we've increased it a lot, 
but we can only do so much. There's nothing like being told to go do radar at a particular location, set up, you're ready to rock, and then all of a sudden you get a call, you gotta go on a call for service. You show back up, you're there for two minutes, you're just about to pull somebody over, you get called to go on another call for service. That's what's currently happening right now, and we're not gonna be able to provide you know, the traffic enforcement that people are asking. Um, the department's gonna be in a much better position to deal with known and unanticipated events causing personnel reductions. We're gonna have more retirements in 24. I already know about it. We're gonna have some in 25. We're gonna have the unknowns, like the two young officers that left. Um, you know, people are gonna get sick, you know, and unfortunately may be injured. It's gonna allow the department additional options not currently available when we talk about hiring. As I said before, I can't tell you, I can't predict who's going to apply to us to transfer. If we're looking for women or minorities or something like that to kind of diversify the department, I can't predict that. Now the list, I have a little bit more leeway to look and say, okay, we'll interview the 10 female candidates that passed our test and so forth, but I can't use the list because I can't afford to send somebody to the academy. I can't do that because I don't have the personnel numbers to be able to do that. Um, again, it's gonna help us maintain our high standards and you know the hard work we did to uh, uh, you know obtain police accreditation. Uh, and with 34 officers assigned to the operations division, as, as Jamie said, I can't tell you what the reduction will be because we've never been there. The department has never properly fielded a police, uh, uh, an operations division with two over the minimum. Do I predict that we will be able to save money? Absolutely. It just, it's a no-brainer. If you're going to have two over instead of the second person out, it's now the third person out, those numbers should end up dropping and we should be able to, you know, I think we predicted in, in the, uh, it's, it's probably over $100,000 could be more that would be able to so if, you know if we're asking for 331 for their salaries you know 100,000 could come back in, in savings in, in fiscal year 25. and of course i gotta throw ben out there when i'm asking for money so. <laughs> i know it's uh he didn't make it in that picture but uh <laughs> We do. It's it's the administration, you know. I mean, we we kind of you know, we look at trends and so forth. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you; the minimum hasn't really gone up, and you know, same thing, 20 years. And then, um, how does details impact this? When you need people to go out on details, does that impact how many people you have to go into normal shifts? No, details is completely voluntary. It's oh, it's a, to be voluntary. Okay. No, no, no. The only time we'd ever order for a detail is if it was like an emergency situation. You know, it'd have to be a significant emergency. We call it out first, and then it goes to the full-time offices, our specials that are still post-certified, that, you know, recently retired, they keep up with their training. Uh, and then, of course, we have, uh, you know, traffic constables. You know, basically, we've gone to, um, it, mostly it's the fire department. You know, individual, because we just can't fill them all, because just like they're not looking to do overtime, they're certainly not looking to stand out and do traffic as well, you know. Um, and then my last question was, and I, you've kind of addressed this, but you, you have four on, how long do you anticipate, like what's the challenge in getting those hired? It seems like that's harder and harder, so how are you gonna get those four on board? We've already posted it, hoping that we get the money, and if we don't, then we basically, you know, we wouldn't interview, but hoping to get, again, transfers. Hoping to see, we do have some people that sent in um, unsolicited, you know, we're looking, you know, to come to your department, so we do have that. I um, mean, the last time that we put something out, we got 19 applications, but unfortunately, um, you know, we, we only interviewed, I, I want to believe, out of the 19, we interviewed nine. We were only fond of four. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, again, now, now you start doing background checks and one didn't work out. We're working on the second one right now because I'm not going to sell. 
that is one thing I'm going to tell you right now is that this department is not going to settle and reach down deep and then make a decision to hire somebody that we don't feel meets the standards of what it is to be a Franklin police officer. It's not going to happen while I'm here. Um, that's it. Anyone else? Okay. Okay. It, is there a reason to have a user lose it policy for the vacation? We just, it'd be tough to budget to, you know, to have everybody turn. We do allow them to turn in 20 hours, they can basically transfer over. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit, but if you let everybody do a week, uh, then it would be, uh, by the time they'd have to tell us that they were going to do that, if the budget was already submitted, I'd have no way of saying, I'd be like, geez, you know, that's a lot of, you know, extra time. When they use their time, right. it could potentially end up causing an overtime situation. Um, there's not an exact science when it comes to overtime. Oh, no. Yeah, so I mean, right now we take the, the total amount of all of the time the operations division has for personal days, holidays, et cetera, and then basically hour for hour at an overtime rate, and then we slash it by 60%, and it's worked for the last 30 years. Kevin Ryan was here. That's how they used to be 60%. Now we're down to 40%. Um, but that's typically how we do it. But uh, we do allow them to carry up to you know 10 hour, uh, 20 hours over or two shifts for the operations division. Um, I was just wondering, and you kind of touched on this, but just in terms of, it almost seems like with overtime, well, two areas, uh, it's overtime pay and kind of the cost to hire new people and the expense associated with that anyways, it almost seems like this would pay for itself. Um, and that's where I'm trying to understand, I don't know. If, if you're able to kind of say, well, these are the number of overtime hours, you know, that, that we're filling right now, and you're paying time and a half or whatever, and so, you know, you have an officer too, and it, it could even almost pay for itself. I mean, I think we'll definitely, if there comes a, <clears throat> this will definitely decrease the overtime, and you could probably eliminate the overtime, but it would be at a cost above and beyond what the overtime budget is. Yep. Uh, like when I originally went in, told uh, Jamie and Jeff. Um, you know, we're going to the MEC, we're gonna lose uh, the dispatches, we're not gonna have somebody up front. I don't want a dark station. I don't want it where people come up and have to ring a bell and, and there's nobody to greet you and so forth. And there's a number of auxiliary things that dispatches do that don't involve answering the phone or using the radio. Um, I said, I got a plan for that, but it's gonna cost this. And we need seven, eight additional offices. And they basically said, you're out of your mind. It's not gonna happen. I said, okay, I got plan B. And that's how the four on, four off, 10 hour shift schedule came to be. And the only reason that lasted was that that worked because even, and we got five officers out of that. When we switched from a four and two, eight hour shift to a four on, four off, 10, it's because we took, they owe us 100 hours of time. Because it's 100 hours, actually 120 hours less when you work a four and two, eight than a four and four, 10. They negotiated 20 hours up, but they owe us 100. All of the training that we used to budget for and pay for used to be on all the time. Now it is on their straight time. They do it while they're not scheduled to work and it doesn't cost us anything. And we took all that money and hired five people. And they love the, the training and professional development. It's a, they love the training and development and they love the four on, four off. So again, with all this wellness initiatives that we're doing, the four on and four off, that was a, a part. I mean, it, it wasn't the primary reason we did it, but it definitely provided a wellness thing, you know, having that extra time on. Um, you know, four days on and now you're four. It's a compressed schedule and you've got these four days off. Um, and then we're ruining it by having to order people to work all the time. Right. If you think about the four on, four off, you take your week vacation, you now have 12 days. So, you know, 
that's pretty good. And that makes Franklin police also very attractive to a lot of other candidates, especially younger officers where this culture has changed, um, you know, where people want to come here because of that. I, I don't know the closest other department that has that schedule. It's pretty far though. Um, uh, North Andover, a couple down the Cape. So I will say that I'm getting inundated right. with requests about our four on and four off. And then there's others through the Mass Chiefs that put out, hey, I'm looking to go to a 12 hour. Because New England is the last basin of eight hour shifts when it comes to law enforcement in the United States. Everybody I went to the National Academy with in 2017 was working either 10 hour shifts and a majority were working 12, 12 hour shifts. So regionally, when you're attracting candidates, it's an attractive place to be just on those issues alone. Mm -hmm. I have one. There's a rainbow up there. There's a pot of gold at the end of it. <laughs> what would be, well, considering potential future things around here, what would be your ideal number of people without, you know, we don't need 14 guys of shift, certainly, but some number. What is the magic number that virtually eliminates overtime, let's say, or reduces it out of sight? What's that number? Do you know? I'll give you the pot of gold answer. I'll give you the uh, possibly realistic <laughs> answer. No. Um, if, I'll, I'll buy that. if we had two more offices to add to the 34, if we had to get these and make it 36. See that shift right there? That's not a misprint. That officer comes in at 1 o'clock in the morning and works till 11 o'clock in the morning. And there's no way for me to get rid of that right now. Try even with 34 to get rid of it. I would not end up with a two over the minimum for 20 hours. I would only end up with a two over the minimum for like 12. If I, get, if I had two more offices, I'd be able to add to the 9 to 7 and they'll, you know, in the 4 to 2. And we would be able to actually get rid of that, taking those four offices, two offices assigned to each group plus the other two, and we'd be able to get rid of that ship. I hate that ship, but I have no choice right now. I have no choice. So there's two. And I'd, I'd, li I'd also like to get at least two offices to be able to use towards just traffic enforcement. That's all they would do. Maybe even more. So you're saying two. Why not four? Four. Yeah. Realistic. It's just the I'll take 10. I got plenty to do for them, but I just know it ain't going to happen. So I'll take four would be really good. Two to be able to get rid of that one to 11, adding to patrol, and then two offices that I'd be able to basically assign to just doing traffic enforcement. Those numbers too, he needs a station. Hmm? If those numbers as well, he needs a station. At some point, you know, it's, you know, and I'm sure once the building committee gets starts, there'll be tours and all that stuff. You'll see everybody, every closet, Laura, you know, all the sergeants, they're all stuck in closets. So at some point, I'm just also acknowledging and making the pitch. You know, if we want to get to those numbers, we, there's, there's really not much more room. And as the chief said, there's no remote work really available. Um, so at some point, the station has to become a reality. Yeah, I mean, right now we don't have, it's not just the, it's office space, but locker room right. space. I mean, if we're running out of locker room space in the male locker room and in the female locker room, I only have two more spots. And the lockers are this big, high school lockers. You know, they're not built for what the, the demands of the uniforms that they have today. Everything is rechargeable. I'm surprised we haven't burned the station down. Sorry, <laughs> Chief. <laughs> <laughs>
Chairman, members of the Finance Committee, Jim McLaughlin, Chief of Department. Um, the proposed budget uh, for FY24 for the Fire Department is a $595,000 increase. 55% of that $595,000 is related to uh, collective bargaining items, uh, the majority of that uh, being the COLAs. The other 45% of that number is basically two separate items. The first item is on the expense side of the ledger. We've added uh, turnout gear for $75,000. Similar to the police department, there was conversations during the capital round where um, prior to this year, we've always put turnout gear in the capital uh, uh, round of uh, budgeting. It is a recurrent expense, and a decision uh, it was brought down to me from the TA and the uh, finance department to incorporate that into it as a line item into FY24 uh, for its budget. So that's where you see an extra $75,000 in the expense side. On the personnel side, we are asking for two positions. One, being an EMS captain that would report directly to the EMS battalion chief at headquarters during business hours. Uh, that would uh, assist with internal training, also external training. We've been doing a lot now with the senior center. We've been doing a lot with our other town municipal employees, school department with the school nurses. We can act uh, more interaction with the uh, um, public health director and keep on top of uh, trends that are going to be changing in the EMS uh, industry in the future to come. In addition to that role, during those hours during the week, that position will also be readily available to, to, to go on to the spare ambulance that's at headquarters, A3, that is fully stocked. That truck has everything except personnel. Currently, our, um, our ambulance that's stationed at headquarters cross-mans the tower truck. That person would be also available to take that tower truck if it was a fire call and A1 was out on the road. Who would that person be with? It would be with the other firefighter that we get proposed in this budget. That firefighter would work the same identical schedule as that captain during the day at headquarters. This is certainly outside the box. This is not conventional, but we're not afraid to go outside the box if we think we're gonna give a better level of service within the best financial way that we can. Would we like to have a third ambulance? I think right now we're in that transition phase between a second ambulance and a third ambulance. Our numbers are going up. Uh, to the, uh, uh, calendar year 22 is the first time the department's gone over 5,000 runs. We did 5,120. Our mutual aid call, calls coming in are at an all-time high as well, 250. Um, in my budget narrative, we've listed the peak times of these runs, of when we're calling for mutual aid, all runs in general. And uh, the majority of the calls are Monday through Friday and between 7 a.m. and 5, 6 p.m. I'm not a big proponent of peak time personally. Um, things happen. Chairman, I know you listen to us all the time. Uh, bad instances happen after business hours during the week. There's a lot of simultaneous calls there as well. But we think this is the first step in that we can address bringing down mutual aid in the most cost-effective manner. 
So that firefighter would work not like normal firefighter come on the Franklin Fire Department, they'd be assigned to one of the four groups and work a 24-hour shift like everyone else. This firefighter would work 7 to 5.30 on the same four days that that EMS captain's working four days. Now we have that extra bench, if you will, during those hours that if we have two ambulances out at, at the same time and we do get another medical call, we can roll that truck. And we're very fortunate to be in the situation to do that. I'm sure there's a lot of fire departments that would like to do it, but they don't have good reserve apparatus like we do to do that. We, we keep up with our apparatus. We, we have that support of getting uh, good apparatus uh, readily replaced. That allows us the opportunity with the reserve truck of manning that truck and performing that duty. We think it's gonna bring down the mutual aid calls. Um, and we also, we talk about the ambulance, but it's also gonna give us the, uh, the option of putting that ladder on the road as well. If we need be, if that ambulance, say one is at Milford Hospital or simply on another run, we don't have to rely on a mutual aid ladder truck. So we think it's a, a good step in the right direction. Again, it's outside the box, it's not conventional. Um, but we think it's the right thing to do. I mean, if we wanted a 30 ambulance, we'd be asking for eight people right now. We know that's not realistic. So this is what we think is the best way uh, of doing that. So um, that's where we are with the personnel. Like we said, the run count is going up. Uh, the, the, our, our ambulance transports is going up as well. For this current FY23, we expect about $2.2 million to come in from that. Just last year's fiscal year was 1.875. So we've had a significant, we got about 300 to 350,000 increase in, uh, in revenue. And when you talk about this extra ambulance, we know the revenue is a big thing. It's a, it's a great thing for the town, but ultimately it's about the services that someone needs. If someone has a stroke, heart attack, it's so important to get that person to that facility that much quicker. In addition to that, even though those engine companies are the same trained medics as the ones that are on the ambulance, but the ambulance has all the medications. The engine companies only have very limited things, Narcan, an EpiPen, an aspirin. The ambulance has all those medications that we like to give person in a very quick manner at the, at the wherever the incident takes place. So we can both administer uh, that medication and get them on the way uh, to a, a hospital at the same time. We think it's a win-win, uh, both in that regard for the ambulance and for the coverage with the ladder. So that's what our, our proposal is for the two firefighters. So, between those two items and our CBA commitments, uh, that is the reason for the $595,000 increase from last year's fiscal year. Can you remind me, do we get a chargeback when we call mutual aid? Do we get a fee for that? How does that work? So, so if a mutual aid outside of the town yeah. company comes here and transports a patient, that town gets that, uh, <coughs> they get that money. The, 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 the vehicle, the town, the town that transported that person. Oh, we don't. The Bellingham comes in, Bellingham bills they, they, the patient. They bill the oh, patient. Oh, they bill the patient. So, okay. so conversely, if we go to another town, they would be able to do that as well. Yeah, but so more times than not, we're needing help coming in and us going out. Um, so we won't, if the mutual aid calls drop, it's yeah. not like we're going to get a deep, we're not, there's no expenses that we're incurring that will go down. So it, 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 it should go up as far as the ambulance yeah. serving for sure because it's less times we have to rely on the outside of the box. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the new firefighter would be a paramedic slash? You have to be a paramedic to apply to, to even apply. You have to be a paramedic. How many members of the department are paramedics right now? We've only got two firefighters on the, on the payroll right now left that are EMTs. 
Um, once they retire, which both of them will probably be retired within 12 to 18 months, uh, the whole department, uh, I'm not a medic as well. I'm not, a, I gotta count myself too. I couldn't even apply yet. <laughs> so, uh, so, but we have two active firefighters that are, that are not uh, paramedics, anybody else is. Uh, I got in trouble for thinking outside the box last night, so glad somebody, somebody You've got company now. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll ask the same question. Is that rainbow up there? Yeah. And the pot of gold at the end? What would be the ideal staffing with, where you would sleep Yeah. In the perfect world, the ideal staffing for two fire stations that we have would be on uh, each group would be a minimum of 13 firefighters and three extra personnel to cover, as the chief uh, Lynch uh, alluded to. And now in our department, only three firefighters in each shift can take either vacation or holiday time. We limit it at three. So we, if you have three extra firefighters on that shift to cover those three vacancies, that's really going to decrease overtime costs and the potential for someone being ordered. That's the perfect world. Why do I, how do I come up with the, uh, that number of 13? Station two, you'd have your three on the engine, two on the ambulance uh, for your five. At headquarters, you'd have your battalion chief, but you'd have your uh, engine company with three, you'd have the ambulance with two, and I would really like to have those other two on all four shifts to cross man the third ambulance in that tower 24 seven. That's 69 firefighters. That's why we had presenting two to you tonight uh, to do the right thing. Um, could you get away with 65? Yeah, you probably could, because right now on our shifts, we have 11 as our minimum man. Um, um, 11 as our minimum man, uh, three of them being officers. We have 13 assigned to each group. So that means two of those three that are out on vacation or holiday, we should be able to cover with straight time. And for that third, we will cover with time and a half. So that's keeping overtime very manageable for us to have that two extra on every shift. If you don't have any extras on every shift, uh, I, my, throughout my whole career, I've heard finance directors or, or town administrators go back and forth, what's cheaper? You know, overtime or extra personnel, with, you know, you gotta train them, equip them, legacy costs. That's an argument for them, but I'll, Go back to what Chief Lynch said, it comes down to ordering. And that's a huge morale killer. And I can tell you, we've taken a lot of transfers from other departments in the last couple of years. And one of the reasons we're here, besides great equipment, we're training, things are great to work here. Where I'm coming from, I had to get ordered a lot. And it's getting to be a bigger, bigger problem. I had a meeting with my colleagues just yesterday, and a lot of departments are running into the same situation that uh, Chief Lynch talked about. This newer generation, if they're being told they can't go home for another 14 or 24 hours, it's not for me. And they're looking at these departments who have the manning, the correct manning on these shifts to cover them, knowing, oh, when I come to this department, I'm going to be able, when I go home at 7 in the morning, I'm going to be with my family. And I'm not, you could still get ordered. It's not a perfect world. In the nature of our business, you're going to get ordered. That comes with the territory. But once it becomes excessive, it's not gonna be a place that uh, people are gonna to strive to work in. And uh, I can't agree with the chief more. We need to keep that little extra on those groups uh, to take the edge off the overtime of the potential lottery. How many mutual aid going the other way? 
We were, I think it was a calendar year 22. I believe it was about 180, 175, 180. And it's incoming is? 250, 250. And 60, just for reference, 69% of our calls, total calls are EMS related calls. And of all of our calls, the 5,120 in calendar year 22, just over 50% were transports, where we, uh, half those runs, we went to someone's house and took them to, uh, uh, took them to the hospital. Just over 50%. Okay. Anyone? Thank you for the ride. Thank you. You're welcome. Who wants a scorpion ball next yeah. time? <laughs> uh, next up, regional dispatch. Good evening, my name is Gary Primo. I'm the Executive Director of the Metacomet Emergency Communication Center. Those who might not know, we dispatch police, fire, and EMS for six towns, Franklin being one of them. <clears throat> so the State Iowa Department has been very generous with Metacomet in helping us with our assessments. As you see, 21-22, um, Mr. Helen had put in placeholders as the grant covered 100% of those assessments. You'll see a stark increase going over 23 to 24, where they're covering 50% for 23 and only 25% for 25, uh, 24, sorry. So come fiscal 25, the town will be 100% viable for the assessments. Um, there's still support incentive grants that we apply for that give us about $1.5 million to reduce the cost overall. Um, we have about a $200,000 increase of our total budget from last year to, to this year. Uh, that includes adding one additional administrative staff. We haven't hired anybody uh, administrative-wise since we went live four years ago last week. Happy anniversary, Metacomet. Um, <laughs> And we're we have the same staffing issues as police and fire. We have a lot of forces. Luckily, um, we're at the very edge of a very difficult time with staffing, and we are almost at full staff. We're <coughs> approved for 30 FTEs, and we have 24, six are in training, and one is in the state 911, state 911 run police, uh, sorry, Public Safety Communications Academy. So we're, we're plugging along. Um, do you want to go Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, happy anniversary, Gary, and just really quickly, congratulations to Gary. We just, uh, the board, one of those things that people don't think that I might do in my spare time is I'm the chair of the Regional Dispatch Board. Um, and it's been a learning curve for four years. Um, Fortunately, my dad was a state dispatcher for 36 years uh, the state police, so I got a little bit of info, but uh, you know, it's been a big challenge uh, to get uh, everything smoothed out over there. You know, Gary and Daryl and the staff have done a great job. I think what we see with staffing, the board tried to address the other day, we're giving a one-year, one-time bonus, a retention bonus, a three-year uh, retention bonus, and a five-year. Um, just like police and fire, all public safety, the more muscle memory you have, the more consistency, sustainability you have, the better the dispatcher is, the better the response is. 
Um, obviously, one trend we see that we're trying to deal with and we just dealt with it the other day is a great dispatcher just became paramedic and took another job. So um, we're trying to avoid the stepping stone and um, you know the board's been uh, doing the best we can to manage costs with the savings that the, that the regional dispatch center has to try to reinvest that back into the employees. To, and really what part of this is about is trying to really encourage and grow a, a full career ladder. Um, you know, just like both chiefs said, um, staffing is a big issue. Um, it's very frustrating when you get someone in to train them for a couple years, they become familiar with the operation, familiar with the communities, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're off at another place to become a police officer, firefighter, or whatnot. So we're hopeful that those retention bonuses will certainly help. And I uh, just want to also congratulate Gary and thank him for a uh, job well done. We just uh, renewed his contract the other day for four more years. Um, and so, you know, I think while we also want to maintain stability among the dispatch group, um, you know, our administrative team over there has been with us since the start. Uh, both Gary and Daryl have been over there. And I think like what a common theme you're hearing in public safety is morale. You're hearing these issues and I think it's not just here, but it's certainly um, in all communities around the workload. Um, you know, and obviously, um, you know, I think that that probably spreads beyond public safety. Um, I know you heard about it last night, the last couple of days of finance, but um, it is what it is. Obviously, all of you have read the narratives on this for years. Um, and in FY25, you're going to see that number go up uh, to about 1.4 million. So next year, you're going to see a jump of about a half million. So just as context, because I know, I know everybody loves my revenue charts from Monday, additional tax levy capacity of that 3.33 million we got this year, just a fair heads up to the entire audience, another half a million of that, probably a little less because we have we were wise as a community and put money away in the stabilization account. We were the only community in those six towns that created a savings account to take on that 100% number of FY25. And um, I can tell you the other communities of the other five that are in the district um, you know, are certainly nervous about what that means for them. That could mean huge layoffs in those communities. That could be major staff adjustments. I mean, that's very scary. Um, when you look at that number coming up, um, you know, to 1.4 million, you know, that's a big jump. The last thing I would mention really quickly is uh, Gary and the staff have already started to lay the groundwork for a couple of additional regionalization options. Taking on Mendon and Millville certainly helped the economies of scale. It's always been the goal of regionalization in any area, um, but uh, we're looking at um, looking at the uh, uh, possible expansion both within the MEC and uh, we are still looking at and, and keeping an open eye on the other regional dispatch centers to see if there's other um, trends that we can do uh, down the road. So ultimately, we have to do those things. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of time on me. It's a lot of time on the other board members as town managers of those communities. It's a lot of time for them as well as the chiefs. These are just other things in our job descriptions, I think, that, you know, and I appreciate everybody listening for a few minutes and having Gary come in and the regional dispatch, but I just offer it out there is a lot of times we forget about these things and, and uh, I'm not looking um, you know, for any empathy, don't worry about that, but you know, on all those other town managers that serve on that board, all the chiefs who have an operations committee that they deal with, um, it's just more, you know, it's just a lot more work that we all do that um, oftentimes I think goes unnoticed um, for the staff that are over there in Norfolk. So um, I know also one other quick thing is uh, we're working on a, a 
power purchasing agreement to try to save funds in Norfolk by putting solar panels in the carport over on the regional dispatch center, which also happens to be the police station in Norfolk. So, um, you know, obviously all of us can answer any questions that folks may have. Um, how do we get, how does the calculation for our allocation of the MEC go? So, excuse me, the assessments are uh, dictated by the IMA. 50% of the assessment is based on population and 50% is based on Iowa call volume. Thank you. I would assume we have the biggest volume we based do. on list of towns. We have the largest, we're, we basically almost, almost combined down. our population and call volume are larger than the other. Frank is responsible for 44%. And I assume, I didn't hear any of the chief complaints, so I assume the service is good, reasonable. There you go. I was going to ask about other opportunities. It would be nice to have. Because I see the, I've been a junkie for years listening. You can see the difference when you have to pick up the phone and call Bellingham, who's not in the district, for an ambulance, for instance. Whereas the same dispatcher can send one for rent from an off like that. You, you just notice that something. Just to manage expectations. You know, Menden and Millville are tiny, tiny towns. I mean, we even joke at Millville, I think they have like five calls a week. Um, you know, that took two years. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, it's the kind of light switch thing. We just think this stuff is all like Amazon two-day crime. And I think that's been a struggle with regionalization of dispatch. I mean, as we talked about publicly at the board meeting the other day, you know, and truth be told, a lot of towns are struggling to hire dispatchers that are solo departments as well. There is no career ladder in these, in these smaller towns like the Medfields, the Medways, the Millises, um, the Hollistons, the Bellinghams. You know, I mean, we've been working with State 911 to try to figure out if we can kind of, you know, do a little harder of a push because to see those economies of scale, George, I mean, it, it, does, it's gonna, it would take us two, two to three years. So that assessment up there, you know, for 25, 26, you know, is still going to be probably at a full number until we can hopefully lay the groundwork on a larger program, which will obviously have some savings like we saw with Menden and Millville. Um, but negotiating with those communities, we have to redo the intermunicipal agreement. You know, we have to coordinate the fiber connections, you know, the software packages in those communities. We have to get grants to stay down the one. So, there's a lot of coordination that goes into it, even from two small towns like Menden and Millville, you know, it was a solid two plus years, you know, to add in more towns, you know, you're still two or three years out. I mean, obviously we're committed to that, but, um, you know, I guess maybe I'm the skunk at the party where I just have to say, you know, hey, it, it's still going to take a few years to get there. Thanks, Jerry, sir. Thank you. Inspection. Good evening, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. I'm Gus Brown, the head of the inspection department. Just want to walk you through a couple changes this year, uh, fiscal year 2024. We're over last year's budget by that amount that you see there, but we're actually under. Um, and the reason is it was the changes that we did with staffing prior year, but as you can see from 2022, we're actually under by a couple thousand dollars this year. And some of those changes are because um, we actually saved some money on our office expenses because we're online and 
that's made a huge difference with what we order and what we need. Um, also, we've added that weights and measures um, position as well. But I think we're in pretty good fiscal shape, and I don't have too much more to add. You're a little bit shorter than some that's of the others, but yeah. As, as long as he's not sending me a violation. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty darn good at what he does. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Animal control? Well, the chief's going to remind me of a couple points on animal control because I think a few years ago, or several years, a long time ago, the town administrator, Mr. Nutting, I think, gave them control of some of the calls, but um, but. Tracy, Tracy does <laughs> another genius move by Jeff Nunning. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, um, you know, just for the public's edification, um, you know, we're in a regional agreement with the town of Bellingham, um, and uh, Mr. Nutting worked out um, before Mr. Lynch and I were here. Uh, worked out uh, a negotiation with them where the town of Bellingham manages all this, sends us a bill for the assessment. Um, we house the facility here. We work on the capital program together, and as a, I'm sure a last-minute consolation prize made the chief of police the dog officer in Franklin, which, um, you know, again, just those little things we do on our weekends. Um, in all, in, in all seriousness, though, Tracy um, and Pat and the staff down there. I say this every year. I think to you, um, every other time I've worked for on a week, monthly basis, the town manager's office gets complaints about dogs. Um, you know, seven and a half years, kind of like the record that was broken tonight. Maybe, maybe I'll get a call tomorrow about a dog problem just to break the record, but almost eight years in Franklin, I've never had one citizen um, ever complain about uh, animal control. So they do a tremendous, tremendous job. And, um, you know, so that's it. Because whose dog is this? A lot of things. So, yes, uh, I guess we're done except. Yeah. Let's cut through some slides. Do you want to do the vote on on the overall budget at this point? Or do you because I don't have a total amount this I give you the yeah. Um I do. Um let me just um yeah, why don't you do that? Because I was gonna recommend that anyways, but I want to obviously have a couple slides up about um, um, potential options for um, for the schools as well as I know there's been a lot of questions regarding overrides and stuff and so I'm just going to do a couple primers up there just to get some people some information and some direction so but the recommendation Mr. Chairman is even regardless of some of the additional changes in the budget the recommendation I would make to all of you is if you're comfortable with the budget as presented to approve the budget as is and as I'll go through in a few minutes, a slide on where the adjustments may take place, because I have to wait for state aid numbers to come in in July. So I'll address those later. She's going to play Glenn Jones. OK. OK, so um, <laughs> I move for the Finance Committee um, to adopt said general fund budget, water enterprise fund budget, sewer enterprise fund budget, solid waste enterprise fund budget, stormwater enterprise fund budget, 
with a total appropriation of $150,948,188, of which $133,277,223 to be raised and appropriated in the balance transferred from enterprise funds Second. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, so I've kind of um, used a little bit of a builder term here, sharpening the pencil, kind of double meaning. But obviously, I think everyone's aware of, um, of the challenges after last night's meeting. Um, you know, some, some very difficult numbers uh, coming out for the schools. Um, I just wanted to give some annual, some annual numbers here. Uh, again, the slideshow, the next couple days, we'll put last night's presentation from the schools as well as this up online, as well as Monday's. So I just want to give a, a historical uh, public school dollar amount annual increase chart up here. And as you can see back in 2016, the annual appropriation for the public school district was about $57 million. Um, and this year, we'll, uh, over the course of those seven or eight fiscal years, get up to about 71.2 based on the uh, recommendation of the Finance Committee. And you can see the annual increase over here uh, in the middle column. And then over here, there's some percentages. Um, obviously, 2021 was the big pandemic year, so that year in there is going to have a lot of federal stimulus funds, both for the town uh, as well as the school. But I just wanted to point out the average annual increase over this time period uh, is 1.787 million, or approximately 55 to 60% of the tax levy, okay? Um, and I, I had to remind myself of this, and somehow I came out, and probably while I was sleeping in the middle of the night, um, in 2019, 2020, just to remind the public at home, as well as all of you, some of you were here, some of you weren't, the town tapped almost $2 million of its rainy day fund um, to balance the school budget in those two years. So even these numbers where the three million number is there, you know, only were those numbers up that high because of the stabilization account. And as we all know, um, the stabilization account went to zero, uh, which is very dangerous. And now the stabilization account, we've been able to rebuild that back up over the last four, three or four years to three million. And that's a key, key, key thing is we just heard from our town auditors on uh, uh, last week, as well as our bond rating agencies, which we did the unthinkable to get a AAA bond rating. There were two big factors. There was savings and rainy day supply from a fund, and there was the Community Preservation Act, which essentially proves to rating agencies that the taxpayers are behind tax increases. So it shows a certain power in your community to be able to do those things. Maintaining the AAA bond rating, I don't think I need to tell any of you, but just for the folks watching at home, is probably one of the most critical policies we have to maintain for interest in mortgage rates. 
going up and skyrocketing, if the town is ever going to borrow, that, uh, that uh, AAA bond rating must stay. And I think it was pretty clear on our auditor presentation last week, for those of you that may have watched, uh, the auditor said to an answer to a question from Councilor Pellegri, I believe it was, you know, how important is all that? And basically, he, he confirmed um, that, um, that the AAA bond rating is directly correlated with rainy day funds. I just also, I've gotten a lot of questions on some of these issues, so I'm just putting up a couple of educational slides. So other school appropriations since that same time, we just went through the stabilization account. Um, almost 4.1 million in projected capital funding for vehicles, curriculum, technology, teacher and staff technology, facilities upgrades. The sources of those revenues were from free cash. And as all of you know, where does free cash come from? It's always a trivia question, right? It's basically the folks behind me, and here we are Monday night, from our town departments managing their budgets really well. And one of the things that I was really, really, really proud to hear from our auditors with an unsolicited question on it from, I think, again, Council Pellegri was, you know, how, how important is that? And he pointed to the reserves and, re and really actually highlighted the fact that the town departments were managing their budgets so well, um, is that that was a really big feature in the fact that our audit came out with no management letter, uh, with no recommendations, and that our books uh, and everything had been transparent, clean, and organized. Um, and so ultimately, um, you know, that, that dynamic has really resulted in actually a, a streamlined set of funding, which has helped to offset the costs for the school district budget. Um, I do expect in the future free cash will go down a little bit as budgets are becoming a little bit more tight, but um, again, I think our departments will do a great job. To the point about um, um, uh, borrowing authorizations, um, you know, there are two that are pending. I've pointed this out before, this is also going to occupy an enormous amount of debt and interest capacity in the operating budget. Uh, I'm getting questions often, uh, as, as they should be, quite frankly, from the schools about when can the high school 10-year upgrade take place. There's a million and a half in authorization already there. And the Remington-Jefferson remodel before the pandemic was scheduled to probably already be moving along right now. But obviously, we got that uh, delayed for a lot of different reasons, uh, staff capacity, money, interest rates, et cetera. But in a couple of years, RJ will be 30 years old. Um, and it needs a new roof. It's going to need new mechanicals. It's going to need a playground and a variety of other things. The good news is we already have a chunk of that money authorized. I'm sure that the estimate that we did back in 2020 has probably gone up. But I just put those on the, on the radar because um, if we're going to maintain the quality of our facilities, particularly our school buildings, these are projects that really also need to get going at some point. And I just want to point out, um, you know, the federal stimulus money has been a uh, saver, uh, but the schools have benefited. We gave almost 85% of the money from the CARES Act um, to the school district during the pandemic, mostly in the form of Chromebooks. Uh, Tim, unfortunately, was unable to, to make this year's hearing due to a, a personal conflict, but um, he will be in here next year because that was four years ago. And we all know Chromebooks don't last for 10 years. So now we're going to be asked for thousands and thousands of additional Chromebooks. These capital upgrades are huge amounts of money coming down the pike that are going to affect um, you know, student education. We have to be cognizant of that. As we heard from Miriam and Lucas and everyone the other night, the ESSER money, the grant money, the ARPA money, the one-time funding, uh, those dry up in the next uh, 18 months. Um, and so. It's something to be cognizant about. Um, obviously, as folks know, uh, we balanced, um, you know, in the, in the case of the town, 
the council and the town administrator and our departments and our unions held the line on the COLA increase at 2.5%, as we articulated the other night. But in order to get those contracts done, given the financial discrepancy uh, between the unions, essentially we had to use ARPA funds, one-time revenues, to help settle those contracts. So while the tax levy impact is stable and we've stayed within budget, okay, in order to get those contracts done and address the issues that the Chiefs just made uh, in terms of making sure that we pay our public safety personnel the amount that they deserve, you know, we're up for collective bargaining up in 18 months. Um, and in my book, that is not far away. <laughs> It'll be here before we know it. Uh, I just need to make sure everyone's aware that we were able to get those contracts done with the infusion of ARPA funds, which will not be available in all likelihood uh, in a couple of years. So my first recommendation, and again, uh, as I just mentioned, we'll make these adjustments if town council feels that these are appropriate and the finance committee feels that these are appropriate. Um, later this summer, when we get the final state aid numbers, um, my recommendation would be to make some adjustments in the, um, in the uh, operating budget to transfer some money um, to get the schools back a little bit over that average annual increase. Okay, so the average annual increase, again, was about 1.78 million. Um, if we do these items, we'd be able to get their annual increase from FY23 to FY24 up to 1.85 million. State aid, we estimate about 250,000. I think we heard from Tri-County, Natalie pointed out there's a difference there. But again, once all these numbers shake out, we'll get a final cherry sheet and uh, we'll plug in those and we will certainly dedicate the additional state aid um, to, uh, to the school district, all again in advance of the start of the school year. That's the goal here because um, obviously they need to know what kind of money they're dealing with before the school year starts for appropriate staffing. Second recommendation would be to take out the 116,000 for capital gear for police and fire. I did this because I've been asked to do this by many counselors and many others about we want to put capital funding in the operating budget. I think as we can all see, there's a lot of stress on the operating budget. And so I just think that at some point we have to come to that reality that we are just simply not going to have operating capacity given the competing demands. We have a capital program that works very, very well. This does not mean that our public safety officials are not going to get their turnout gear and tasers. They will. I'm just acknowledging the fact that I think for the, for the benefit of the schools, we need to consider rolling back that money. But for illustrative purposes for uh, everybody at home, I think it's important to notice and I do agree with Councilor Pellegrini and Councilor Cormier-Ledger. We should have this stuff in the operating budget. We do use this stuff every year. And if we're going to get more officers and paramedics, we're going to need more. It is ridiculous that we're funding this stuff on the capital program. But it's the only way we've been able to do it for 20 plus years because of exactly the dynamics we talked about on Monday. As everybody knows, during the pandemic, a very easy way, it's not the best, but um, is to reduce the facilities budget $100,000 in, in the spring of 2024. Let's give Mother Nature a shot. Um, she did it well when the pandemic year, the grass was okay, it was green, um, but reducing $100,000 for lawn watering, uh, maybe someday we realize we just can live without um, irrigation on some fields and we can just let the good old rain uh, take care of it, but that'll save $100,000, which I know will go far away for the district. Uh, reducing 50,000 for snow and ice removal expenses, and then for regional dispatches, I mentioned a minute ago, um, being able to transfer and use and tap into that stabilization fund, which currently has about 
uh, just under 900,000. Um, and that account will allow us to do uh, and to give a little bit more to the school district. So that basically is about an increase, about 820, and, um, and be able to plug that in, and we'll be able to get the school district uh, over their uh, average annual increase, which I know they greatly appreciate. And then recommendation two, certainly we're open to any ideas and comments uh, that the Finance Committee or any of the other officials have, but in absence of that, there are a few other things that we're working on. Uh, number one, I, I will admit, uh, as I mentioned on Monday, I whiffed completely with my analysis, uh, political analysis, that the out-of-district placement was a layup for the legislature to fix. Disappointingly, the House did not put any uh, relief in that in their House budget. The governor filed a supplemental budget, which is really annoying, because I was really hoping that she could have just put it in her budget proposal, which then would have relieved the idea of the House and Senate having to do it. That's $93 million to pay that 14% statewide. $93 million, which would infuse $775,000 in relief for the school district. I think we all know that would make a huge difference. The governor both filed a 10% relief, and there were amendments filed in the House for a 10% relief. Neither of them are moving forward. So we've left it up to the Senate. I've written them letters. <laughs> I wrote another one today with another email. Just with a billion dollars in taxes coming in from the billionaire's tax, I, I just, I'll stop. Really frustrating. Um, I don't get it, especially where that money goes. For out-of-district placement for special education students, it just seems like, how can they not find the $93 million to pay that bill for every district in the state that's frustrated by this? And we heard the superintendent talk very passionately about this last night, as they should. My heart's pumping. It's just like, come on, man. We have the paramedics. I'll take a scorpion ball on the ride, too. <laughs> Streamlined uh, financial uh, office and HR office restructures. I just want to give a huge shout out to both the superintendent and the assistant superintendent. We have had some incredible meetings the last couple weeks on trying to make some gains there. Importantly, not just to develop some savings for the school district, which will save them a little bit of money, building additional capacity. Um, we all mentioned, and I appreciated your words last night, George, uh, for Ms. Goodman. Um, She's been a one-person show for a long time. She's working 60 to 65 hours a week. I consider her two full-time employees with her skill and knowledge. Um, we need some additional capacity for both the town and the schools down here. Um, it's been a very, very challenging couple of years. So, And then the mental health task force, talking to the superintendent. Again, I just want to give huge kudos to the superintendent in talking to us. They have a mental health task force at the schools. I've been trying to get them to think of the mental health issue as a community-wide issue, right? Not just a school issue, but a community-wide one. The schools don't create that crisis. They receive the symptoms of that crisis. And we have to look further beyond. The chief of police, in particular, has been extraordinarily innovative on this issue. There might be some additional ARPA funds available. The opioid settlement funds uh, have still yet to be determined and some additional shared services. Our senior center has a caseworker. We have some additional resources in the fire department and beyond. Um, I think this might be able to provide some additional safety net uh, resources either directly to the school district or at least maybe it'll take some of those, some of that relief uh, off their plate. 
these are just a few things that I'm mentioning that are in the works right now and that we're working on as a team. Both uh, the schools uh, and the town officials are working very collaboratively and very well together on a lot of these issues. And um, I just didn't want these uh, issues to go unnoticed that um, both of our uh, operations are working very collaboratively uh, on a lot of these. So moving forward, uh, a few other items. Uh, just moving forward, I think all of you on the Finance Committee, I'll just lob this one out there. We obviously heard from the School Business Administrator last night that they're going to be using a disproportionate amount of revolving funds to pay for their operations. Um, after this year, or moving forward into FY25, um, we just have to really draw the line somewhere. If we, if we take all the, if we don't preserve the reserves, that are left in either the school department or the town, we are really putting the community in a much, much more challenging position, especially with the global economics uncertain around a recession and stubborn inflation. Um, you know, town administration and the school administration will be working to have weekly meetings to discuss the solutions to a lot of the financial pressures. I do want to offer and facilitate an educational meeting with the town attorney on the legal procedures uh, around ballot questions, election details, ethics laws for public employees. We'll talk in a minute relative to an override. Um, I just mentioned the restructure of the finance and HR departments. And, um, and just to really work together to develop a process to develop a sustainable and comprehensive uh, community-wide financial roadmap for the future. I think Tyrell uh, mentioned this last night. And um, I know the superintendent talking to him today um, you know, just so everybody is aware, you know, while there may be uh, a little challenging meeting demands, um, that does not mean that our offices do not work well together. Our offices work extremely well together. The police chief, the fire chief, DPW director, all of us work uh, and communicate to the best of our ability. I think as we've heard from everybody, all of us are overextended. We cannot possibly communicate at a level with Jedi mind tricks. Um, and uh, we all have a phenomenal working process uh, together. So before I get to the override information, I'm going to let the assistant superintendent in here so she can hear. <coughs> Probably a tidbit, she might be interested. <laughs> so override 101, uh, step one. Uh, from a development of what you're asking it all starts with the school committee. Obviously, unless schools are not asking for any additional levy capacity, which is not the case here, um, the school committee begins the process. How does that happen? Ultimately, as Tyrell asked kind of last night, what do you need? What's the future plan? And what are you asking the taxpayers to raise their property taxes for? And ultimately, what needs to happen is the school committee needs to have a, a discussion either a process, whatever, they're, whatever they want to do, to determine what their needs are. And they need to essentially write a letter with a line item by line item request uh, of what their financial future is. What's legally not required, which I think Tyrell brought up, which is a phenomenal point, which is, well, you may need additional capacity one year out or two years, but what's the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth years? That's not required for an override. That's not part of what you ask people. But inevitably, people are going to ask those questions. You want to be prepared for that stuff, right? So the school committee needs to begin the process of an override. They need a discussion of what they want and why. And they need to send a letter, essentially, to the town council, who is legally authorized uh, under state law, um, to 
uh, put a ballot on the, uh, to put a question on the ballot. The reason why I mention up here 2014 is because uh, in 2014, the town council themselves decided to put an override on the ballot, uh, an override question on the ballot, just for roads. So obviously that didn't require the school. I'm just trying to separate it out, and make sure everybody understands. The second step would be the town council is the authorized body uh, for the community that puts ballot questions of any kind on the ballot. And uh, essentially the council would review the school request and then there would be a discussion of non-education override items, possibly such as roads, sidewalks, capital municipal needs, also police officers, paramedics, staffing, um, salaries. I mean, it could be anything, right? Um, it could be for insurance. I mean, it could be any account that you all just went through and they say, we need this amount of money. We need $100,000 for line item this. And essentially what goes out is a book with a line item by line item description for the voter of what it is that, that the town council has decided to put uh, on a ballot question. Step three, which is optional, it's not required by statute, uh, but I'm guessing that most people would probably want to do this, is once you have a ballot initiative settled by the two, uh, the two uh, bodies, would review uh, at the joint budget subcommittee. Again, not required, but for educational purposes, um, and maybe um, strategic purposes, um, you know, if, if, if the council and school committee are asking for an amount of money, um, the joint budget subcommittee may be the proper place to try to find out what, what they think as both all three main financial boards say, what do we think the appetite might be in the community? What's the average household cost? I mean, all these different dynamics, but at least you have members of the school committee, the council, and the finance committee all discussing this at once uh, for potential ballot prep. Okay, not required, probably a good idea. And then step four, the town council would coordinate with the town clerk on an election schedule. Uh, election schedules vary, but I put up some uh, basics up there um, where you know, it depends on whether it's a federal, state, or local election. Local election gives you a little more authority because it's your local election. But when you get into state and federal elections, you then have to, you have to go by the ballot um, requirements uh, to put a question of, of any type, by the way. This isn't just an override, but any ballot question, you have to go through the rules uh, the Secretary of the Commonwealth of the Federal Government. So the minimum amount of days is 35 days at a local election. That you have to give um, a heads up to the taxpayers, minimum of 35 days. I put a link up here to a prop two and a half ballot questions manual. I'm gonna hold it up. And so all of you can see, I don't know if Chris is, Chris, you may not wanna, oh, there you go. Nice job, man. Um, it is uh, from 2017, it's a Prop 2.5 ballot questions, requirements and procedures. Um, for anyone interested in getting involved in the override debate, this is must read material. There is also what's called the infamous DOR Prop 2.5 primer, uh, which is also a good reading, combined documents, probably about 50, 60 pages. Um, I highly encourage everyone to read that uh, in the community that is interested in this issue. Um, depending on the date, um, if there was ever a question, additional requirements are triggered. So what does that mean? If for some reason uh, a group or the council decided they wanted to have a ballot question 
before the budget hearings, before the legislative body, the town council, um, there's a different set of requirements. If a vote was after tonight in, or later in the year, maybe in the mid-year at a state election or local election in November, you essentially have to give two options. Here's the budget that's approved, budget A and budget B. So um, this is, I think, why it's really, really critical that if a group of citizens are interested in this, that uh, the offer stands to have an educational forum uh, with myself, uh, the finance team, but more importantly, the town attorney. Um, I've got asked um, you know, a couple times who drafts it. Uh, it would be the town attorney. I can assure you the drafting of the ballot question is by far the easiest piece. It'll take five minutes. Uh, it's probably two, one or two sentences. Um, but um, understanding the do's and don'ts, particularly for public paid officials, is critical. Which is the next point up here, uh, the town administrator, superintendent of schools, as mentioned last night, paid staff cannot advocate for or against an override with town resources. Ultimately, we are significantly limited to this. And as I think you saw last night, there is a cautiousness around this issue. I think if there's ever uh, an appetite from a community group to do this, um, you know, needs to come forward and need to have a bit of an educational seminar uh, for our employees, um, and both the school and town employees, um, and really the town attorney really needs to be consulted and be advising all of us exactly what the do's and the don'ts are. As I mentioned last night to Nicole's question, I apologize Nicole, it was a bit of a long answer, I didn't get to it right away, but ultimately this is a community-driven effort. The superintendent of schools and the town manager can do a couple things. We can talk about mechanics like tonight. We can discuss with our boards what the needs are, you know, kind of through our department heads like discuss tonight. Uh, we can help shape some of that, but we cannot discuss strategy. We cannot discuss how much. We cannot discuss how to go out and strategize and when to do it. Um, we cannot get into those things. Um, that unfortunately for a lot of residents is going to be one of the largest pieces of learning curves here. Because grassroots organization in Franklin uh, oftentimes struggles um, and there's not a League of Women Voters or a defined group, if you will, that traditionally in a lot of communities kind of drives these things. Um, and so it really is a bit of a, um, it's a traditional grassroots organization is required um, and citizens um, have to come together on their own and have their own meetings um, on non-town property, um, wherever that is, um, to go out and coordinate this on their own. And uh, I can assure all of you that is a very laborious process that is very complicated um, and it takes really a lot of extremely dedicated people um, to make phone calls, commitments from friends, find a place to meet, if it's a house or you know, if there's a rental place that people have to go to or whatever. Um, the law was designed this way for a reason. When you are increasing property taxes or proposing that, that is easily one of the top three or five most difficult things to do in any municipality. Many town managers or superintendents might say it's the hardest thing. And under the law in Prop 2.5 back in 1980, they set out a bunch of standards and said if, if communities are going to raise property taxes, it has to be coming from citizen-driven initiatives, not from government officials. And I can't emphasize that enough. 
Um, legally, you also have to have a ballot question committee, which gets into OCPF requirements, which gets into having a committee with a treasurer who's taking in receipts and reporting to the Commonwealth about fundraising and lobbying, uh, which gets into in-kind donations. I know I'm, eyes are glossing over already, which is why I only have one slide on it, <laughs> but I'm speaking to this about the, the complexity around this. This is not some simple thing we go out and do a few tweets a couple TikTok videos and rally the troops and go out and do it in a couple days. This has some serious consequences. I want to give a shout out to Mike Daugherty, uh, who's an attorney in town. Uh, I believe six, six or seven years ago, pro bono, uh, as Mike has always been an extraordinarily charitable individual in town, doing a lot of free work for a lot of causes. Um, I believe he might have set up a committee at one point, um, but that's about all I know. Folks in the community have to reach out. Sorry, Mike, you might get a couple calls, but uh, I know you uh, care deeply about the community and I know you'll uh, res respond to those as you see fit. People always ask me too, what's the override history? So we'll just go through it. Quick shout out to Nancy Dinello, our town clerk, for getting a lot of these numbers together really quickly this week. Since 1990, Franklin's attempted 11 operational Prop 2.5 overrides. All but one in 2007 actually failed. Um, and as we all know, the reason why I forget that is that in 2008, when the recession, it wiped away all the progress. So you're lucky you had the override in 07, and the cuts would have been deeper. Um, the last one was proposed in 2014, which is 1.5 million, which was dedicated just to roads and was defeated nearly 2 to 1. The last omnibus. By that I mean school and town override, which was majority school. The last school override attempt was in 2010. 2010. 13 years. All of you have been listening to this narrative from Jeff and myself for years. And there has never been an effort in 13 years, 13 years, to have an operational override for the school district. There has never been one piece of correspondence from anyone <coughs> requesting an override for over a decade. To me, that is somewhat sobering. Um, and that one in 2010 was also defeated nearly two to one. Uh, since 1990, we've had a lot of debt exclusions in town. Um, eight out of 11 of them have uh, been approved. Um, this, is a, this is a pretty frequent uh, consistent statistic. When you need a school building, taxpayers generally step up at a very high rate. Operational overrides statewide have about a 20 to 25 percent success rate. Um, so usually about a quarter of them pass. Uh, most recently, by the way, the town of Hingham just passed an override for seven and a half million. Hingham. Uh, the most recent example of a discretionary tax increase, however, was the Community Preservation Act in 2020. For those out there that are looking for a little hope, <laughs> um, 60-40. Um, we all hoped. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of people that thought it would have been that overwhelming. But as I mentioned last night, there was a long-standing process in that of an educational piece from the town council for many, many years of defining the problem, educating people, one-on-ones, small coffees, talking to folks, um, and I think the piece that really hit home was, for all those that want to blame the pandemic for a lot of problems, at one of the most challenging times in everybody's life that year, 
the town council still on the football field. I think we were 20 feet apart. Um, you know, still voted to put it on the ballot and look at the success. It shows you what good grassroots momentum can do, what education can do, and, um, and the amount of time it takes, I think, uh, to do that. Um, and just for illustration, uh, a few of the future likely debt exclusions, as we heard last night, the Tri-County School or the police station, and I'm sure at some point uh, a new school as well. That's it. My eyes glazed. <laughs> Wait till the real conversation happens. Anything else? Future agenda items? I just want one question on uh, Heather. Yes, thank you very much, and thank you for. Yes, can you hear me? We can have... you hear me? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you for all of that information. I just have one clarifying, maybe just for me, I don't know, clarifying question, uh, Mr. Helen, and that is your slide says the school committee would recommend uh, the override, but then you mentioned that no governing bodies be a part of the process and it needs to be a grassroots citizen campaign. So is the school committee not considered a government? I just want to understand that. They are. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. So elected officials are not held to the same ethics laws as we are. So essentially, as a paid employee, we can't use town resources, like buildings, letterhead. We can't use town staff to put out promotional flyers, like vote yes on the override. Um, most notably, just for an example, um, we have a marketing and communications director, Lily Rivera. Lily cannot do any promotional flyers, vote yes, vote no. And so we're restricted significantly under state law. People, and again, I'll, we'll go through this later on, I'm sure, in educational forums. Um, employees do have rights when they're off town time, okay? But the school committee and the town council do not are not held to the same conflict of interest because they're not being compensated. And so they can actually go out and still continue to advocate, and they're really the ones that are likely to lead a lot of this charge. Perfect. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, just one note. Uh, we're going to be losing two members. Dave Weish. Zoom tonight, yeah. and Tyrell is moving off to beautiful Utah. Ah, oh, uh, beautiful. So thank you for the yeah. service. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's it. And I don't. Do you have a next meeting? I would guess either something to do with the adjustments you talked about, or September. I think it would be June if there was a need for one, um, and then we'll take the summer off unless, again, there's some other need. Um, if there's not a need in June, I don't know if any of you will be upset missing another one, but, um, you know, but in all seriousness, like, I think, um, you know, I think you have a little bit of the roadmap here, and um, if there's need for a meeting, I know there's kind of some dates on the calendar, but we'll follow up with everybody. Otherwise, um, you know, we'll see everybody in September. May. Just as a reminder to everybody listening, the, the topic of the override is of course out there, and I think a lot of the commentary is of course around the schools, but after hearing from everybody this week, I think even listening to the police chief and the fire chief, there is so much need everywhere, so I caution everybody to 
do it right. If you're going to approach it, take your time. Involve everybody because it's not just a school issue. It's it's everywhere. So I just want to point that out because I think there's a lot of a lot of chatter out there, but it's it's everybody. Um, and so I think it'll be it'll be great to see people come together, but just caution people to breathe. Jamie told me that earlier. <laughs> Yeah. And just be inclusive of everybody and everybody's needs because I, I said it last night, we don't want to be reactive when it's too late. I think some would argue it is too late, but we don't want it to become more severe. So just want to okay. say my piece and keep that. I'm good now. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, motion to adjourn. Second. George. Yes. Natalie. Yes. Michael. Yes. David. Yes. John? Yes. Tyrell? Yes. Chana? Yes. Nicole is yes. See you in September. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.